Our text this evening is from Exodus chapter 25. If you will turn there with me in your Bibles, we'll pick up with verse 23 where we left off together last time. But before reading from the Word of the Lord, let's go to our God in prayer together. Lord, our desire is to see Christ more clearly upon the pages of Scripture, to see our sin and our need more deeply that we might be driven to Him again and again, and therefore to live as redeemed children, lives filled with increased gratitude, humility, awe, wonder, worship, obedience, because of that most glorious work of our great God, our risen and reigning King, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's Word. Exodus 25, beginning in verse 23. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a handbreadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense, its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly." You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. Shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamp shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. The word of our God. You may be seated. Well, let's remember that Exodus chapters 25 through 31 find Moses upon Mount Sinai, engulfed in the glory cloud of God. And he has this wondrous privilege of not only being in the presence of the Lord, but receiving this detailed instruction from God on how the Lord will come to dwell in the midst of His people. And so for 40 days and 40 nights, he receives this instruction. Obviously, the Lord is in no rush, no hurry, just as incidentally, we're in no hurry to finish our studies through the book of Exodus. 
But in that time, Moses is miraculously sustained by the hand of God as he receives not only the instruction that we read in these chapters, but obviously much more detailed instruction on the tabernacle, on the furnishings, on the priesthood. Now, the additional reference that you see in your bulletin from chapter 37 of Exodus is the construction of these two things, the table and the lampstand, with virtually identical language, because as we read here in verse 40, they make such things just as the Lord instructed them to do. Now, so far, since Moses has entered into this glory cloud upon Mount Sinai, we have learned about the method of contribution Namely, the fact that all of the children of Israel are given the privilege of contributing in some way to all that will be needed to undertake this massive building project. We learned about the Ark of the Covenant and the lid to the Ark, of course, called the mercy seat, the place of atonement, the place of propitiation, both of which, of course, were to be kept in that most holy place of the tabernacle, that most inner sanctum in which the high priest was permitted to enter only once per year. We read about that instruction in Leviticus chapter 16. And now this evening, as we sort of move our way from the interior outward, we come to the holy place, that first room of the tabernacle, and we learn of some of the furnishings that will be kept here namely the table for bread and the golden lampstand. And so we'll look first this evening at each of these pieces of furniture in turn, and then what we'll do tonight is we'll sort of circle back around and consider the theological significance of these two items, what we're learning about the nature of God through the table and through the lampstand. And we also want to be thinking in terms of application What should our response be to the nature of God and who He is as the merciful and kind and loving King? So first this evening, there is the table. And that's our first point this evening, simply the table of presence. Now, notice that there is a lot of similarity in terms of construction between this table and the Ark of the Covenant. Both are made with acacia wood and overlaid with gold. And though this table is relatively small and could be carried by one person, as with the ark, we read that there are four rings that are to be attached, one to each leg of the table for transport. We read about poles made of acacia wood, again overlaid with gold, that will be inserted into these rings for transport. Now, you might remember with the ark of the covenant, the poles were to remain permanently inside of those rings that were to be upon each foot of the ark. But we don't read that here with the table, nor do we have strict prescription that this table is not to be touched. Clearly, this is a table that is to be revered, but these two distinguishing elements between how the ark of the covenant is to be treated versus how these pieces of furniture in the outer room are to be treated serves to heighten that sacredness, that most majestic and holy place in the inner sanctum. Now, we then read about the dimensions of this table, roughly three feet in length, one and a half feet in depth, and about two feet in height, perhaps a little lower to the ground that you might have in mind. The height would be closer to a coffee table or an inn table rather than a kitchen or dining room table. 
Now we read that there was to be a wide rim of gold molding around the edge of this table, meant undoubtedly to keep the utensils that were to be stored on top from rolling off onto the ground. I just think of a simple analogy here. If you've ever been tent camping, even if you take your tent and set it up in a prepared space, most likely it's not on level ground. This is a much larger tent. And when the Lord tells the people of Israel to stop and set up that tent, well, they don't have levels, so there undoubtedly is a little bit uh, askew, and perhaps things placed on top of that table would be prone to roll off. And so just very functionally, this serves to keep those utensils in place. And then speaking of those utensils, we also learn from the text about the items that were to be kept on top of this golden table. There are plates and dishes pitcher and bowls, though we aren't certain how many of each of those were to be stored here. Now, some of these utensils, these plates, undoubtedly would hold the bread. Some would hold a drink offering, perhaps wine to go along with the bread of presence. Now, of course, these all sound like items that you might set out if you were having some friends over for a meal. Uh, Imagine that a friend invites you over for afternoon coffee or for dessert And as you walk in, the place is already set. There's a pitcher of a carafe of fresh coffee, perhaps some pastries and a nice place setting with some linen napkins already set so that you can sit down and enjoy one another's company and fellowship together. And so all of these things that are stored here on the table, collectively they convey an invitation from the Lord a warm and welcoming picture of a fellowship meal, which we'll come back to more in a minute. But the main purpose of this table was to hold bread. Now, we learn more about this bread if you'll turn to Leviticus chapter 24. In Leviticus 24, verses 5 through 9, we learn a bit about how this bread is to be placed and kept here upon the table. Leviticus 25, or 24 rather, again, verse 5. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due." And so notice the further instruction that's given here in Leviticus. They are given a recipe for this bread. They are told how much flour to use, making 12 loaves of equal size. And they are told, for lack of a better description, what these things are to look like, like a thick tortilla, perhaps circular in shape. They are told how to place the bread on the table, namely in two stacks of six loaves each. And they are told that on every Sabbath day, the priests are to bring in a fresh stack of bread as a covenant act on behalf of the people of Israel. And they are to eat the old stack of bread while they are in the holy place. 
Now, clearly, this is consecrated bread. This is not, I had some extra mouths show up at my dinner table and I'm short of food and just go grab a bit from the tabernacle. But this is bread that is set apart for this particular purpose. Now, we learned last time that there were various names that were given to the mercy seat. Similarly, there are different names that are given to this table. In the book of Numbers, it is called the table of the presence. In the book of Leviticus, the text that we just read from, it's called the table of pure gold. In Chronicles and in Kings, it's called the ceremonially clean table and the golden table on which was the bread of presence. Now, we put all of that together, clearly the emphasis and the focus of the table is upon the bread and the fact that this bread is to be eaten in the presence of the Lord each week. Now, in Leviticus, they are instructed to put frankincense there on the two stacks of bread. And so, the sweet and inviting smell of the frankincense, along with the instruction to the priests to come and eat bread in the presence of the Lord, is a wonderful picture of fellowship and of harmony between God and His covenant people. And if we were to think of sort of a side application of that for our own lives, just as the Lord is fellowshipping in unity with His people, the people of God are to live in a similar manner with one another, seeking to resolve conflicts, disputes, or disagreements as they may arise, striving to live at peace and unity. But let's go on and think about another piece of furniture that we read here in chapter 25 that will be kept here in the holy place. And that's our second point this evening, the lampstand, the golden lampstand or the candelabra or menorah. Now, the lampstand was also placed in this outer room of the tabernacle, again, in the holy place. And as it stood upon its own base, it would have been on the opposite side of the room across from the table. Now, there are no specific measurements given this time as to the height of the lampstand, but the amount of gold that is used, one talent would be about 75 pounds, that would make this a pretty significant, extremely valuable piece of furniture, perhaps around five feet tall, all forged from one piece of valuable gold. Now, while we can't be absolutely certain what the lampstand looked like, you might picture the Jewish menorah that you see around Hanukkah. There would be seven stems with seven lamps, one in the center and three on either side. And we read that each stem was elaborately fashioned with decorations to resemble almond buds, blossoms, and fruit. Each small bowl on the top of every stem would be filled with oil and then with a wick inside of each of those bowls. Now, we read later in Exodus chapter 27 that the people are to supply oil so that the light can continue to burn perpetually. And so, the people have really an ongoing role, we might say, in the maintaining of this light. Now, the trays and the tongs that are mentioned there in verse 38 would be for Aaron and his sons to tend to the lampstand from evening until morning, 
We don't read explicit instruction whether this tray with these varying instruments was kept there at the foot of the lampstand, most likely was used to carry the bits of burned wick in and out and to bring in a replenishment of oil so that the lamp would be always burning. And so if you picture the size of the lampstand, again, perhaps five feet or so in height versus the size of the table of bread on the other side of the room at about two feet in height, the lamp would shine its light down upon the table. Its light would shine down primarily upon the bread that was kept there. And we read that in verse 37 of our text. The lamps shall be set up so that they give light on the space in front of it. And so these are the two pieces of furniture that we read about here in Exodus chapter 25, which would have been kept in the outer room in that holy place. And when we get to Exodus chapter 30, we'll read there that there's another piece of furniture kept in this room, the table of incense, that final piece of furniture in the tabernacle. But let's think thirdly this evening about what some of these things teach us. What do we learn about the nature of God from this table of bread and this lampstand? What is the Lord communicating to His people through the gift of these two pieces of furnishing? And as we try to answer that question, again, thinking, what relevance is there for us today? Let's think about each in turn, sort of, if you're a note taker, two sub-points under this third point. And so first, what is the theological significance of the table of bread? Now, while this bread would have been an offering to the Lord, of course, the Lord does not need this bread. He is the self-existent one in need of nothing outside of Himself. And so, He does not need us to provide anything for Him, nor does He need us to do anything for Him. Psalm 50 verse 12 reads, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, says the Lord, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? The Lord there is teaching His people that contrary to the pagan nations that worship false deities, the notion in their sacrificial system was that offerings would be given so that the gods could be satisfied and their bellies could be filled. But of course, there's no notion of that in offering sacrifices to the Lord. But instead, this is a thank offering, acknowledging that the Lord is the giver of life. In fact, we are the ones who are completely dependent upon Him for everything that we need. He is the giver and the sustainer of all of our days. Psalm 111 verse 5, He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. Notice there in that psalm, think of the the structure of Hebrew parallelism in which one line is tied to the other. He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. Notice how the psalmist draws a connection between the Lord's covenant goodness, which is eternal and everlasting, and His kindness to provide life-sustaining food for His children. In other words, the giving of food is a benevolent act of God's covenant goodness. It is the bread that points to the eternal nature of the covenant. Every Lord's Day on Sunday morning, we pray together the Lord's Prayer. 
one of those petitions is give us this day our daily bread. That's both an acknowledgement that the Lord is the one who gives us our daily bread, and of course it is a request that the Lord would grant to us that which we need. And we could add to that that it's a declaration of trust, that we believe that God will give to us each day that which is needed. You might think about how a young child wants to grow in independence. Sometimes that can be a good thing, but at other times it's his pride and sin nature that gets in the way, and he doesn't like to acknowledge that he needs his mom and dad to help him. He likes to think of himself as much more self-sufficient than he really is. By our very nature, we are dependent creatures, dependent upon our Heavenly Father, And it is good for us to acknowledge to the Lord our need for Him. We need His daily provision. We need His help with truly everything in our lives. We need the Lord every moment of our existence. And as we acknowledge that need, as we confess our dependence upon the Lord, our God is honored and glorified, for He tells us to cast all of our burdens upon Him for He cares for us. Now think about this regular weekly practice for the children of Israel, that every Sabbath day, 12 fresh loaves are prepared and brought in by the priests, and the 12 old loaves are consumed by the priests. Now this is not some ancient Near Eastern Joey Chestnut bread-eating contest. This is not find a priest who can consume all of these 12 loaves. This is a lot of bread to feed a lot of priests. Now, each loaf, of course, represents a tribe of Israel, while the bread represents the Lord's goodness to provide for the needs of His covenant people. Now, imagine that you're watching this ritual on a Sabbath morning. Perhaps you smell the freshly baked loaves of bread and you watch the priests carefully carry them towards the tabernacle. Perhaps another priest pulls back the tents so that they can walk in, and you see the bit of glimmering light from the lampstand that's there on the left of the first room in the holy place. And perhaps because the mouth of the tabernacle was always to face east, which we'll talk about more next time, that the rising sun is glistening off of the gold table to the right, and then the curtain closes. And as you wait for the priests to emerge sometime later, they come out, not of course with the old bread, because they have eaten of those things together in the presence of the Lord and have taken of the drink offering. And really this is quite remarkable, that the Lord invites His people to share a meal with Him to enjoy His provision, His presence, and His protection. To eat this fellowship meal with the Lord is truly a wondrous thing. And remember back in Exodus chapter 24, we saw that there was this three-tiered separation that is now represented in the tabernacle. And remember, it was partway up the mountain in the holy place where Aaron his sons, Moses, and the 70 elders had that covenantal meal there at the foot of the throne room of God. Now, though that experience was certainly unique, 
what we find here is a replication in this weekly repetitive pattern of this intimate fellowship meal between the priests who represent the people and the Lord himself. Now here again we experience this tension that we've talked about before throughout this text that in many ways the tabernacle is forbidden space. Only certain men can enter. Eleven twelfths of the children of Israel can never go inside. And even among the tribe of Levi, there are only some who are designated and given the task of entering on behalf of the people of God. But on the other hand, it's the Lord who establishes this warm and welcoming and inviting environment of communion, of fellowship, of intimacy. It is our sin that creates this huge problem. It is our sin that, humanly speaking, creates this insurmountable problem. And yet, and get this point, the right person can come in if he enters the right way. But you see, even the most faithful priest of Levi had a problem. Even if one of the priests was given this great privilege of entering in to partake of the bread of presence week after week, month after month, year after year, his time would still come to an end because he is mortal. He is a sinner in Adam, and he would eventually die, and another would take his place, and another, and another, and another, in a never-ending perpetual cycle until we get to these remarkable words of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 6. In verse 32, Jesus says to the people, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus goes on, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And so we partake of the work of Christ by faith. To take of Jesus as food, to take of him as drink, is to rest in the work that he has accomplished. And so we enter into the presence of God through our union with Christ Jesus, that great high priest who came, as we saw last time, not bringing the blood of a substitutionary bull, but coming with his own shed blood, coming, giving life and sustaining bread from above. And as a redeemed people who rest upon Christ as the bread of life, who again have partaken of him through eyes of faith, we have this wonderful comfort throughout our earthly life that the God of creation, the God who has created all and sustains the universe in the palm of his hand is our heavenly Father. The mighty King who reigns on high over all events in world history is our tender God who is with us, guiding our steps and directing all of our ways as he sustains our lives. And he knows what we need, and we can trust in him to provide. 
whether it is the literal provision of daily life-sustaining needs, whether it's wisdom that we need from above to make difficult life decisions, whether it's His sustaining hand in the midst of illness or physical trial, whether it's comfort in our sorrows, whether it's the provision of friendship in times of loneliness, our God never fails to provide each of His children exactly what we need, and He can always be trusted. Now, in the context of John chapter 6, there were huge throngs of people following Jesus because He just multiplied the bread and the fish and gave them their fill. But they followed Him only because of what He offered to them. Their stomachs were filled, their desires were gratified, and they just wanted more. They didn't really want Jesus on His terms. They just wanted the benefits of following Him. They just wanted His blessing, but they didn't really want to live for Him. And you see, the physical hunger that we feel, perhaps even daily, that experience is meant to help us see that there is a much deeper and greater need within the hearts and souls of each one of us. Only Christ can forgive sins. Only Jesus can bring us into a right relationship with God. Only He can grant eternal life. And Kevin DeYoung in his little book on the Lord's Prayer writes, Today's grace is for today's trials. And when tomorrow's trials come, God will have new grace waiting for you there. Faith is trusting that when the future comes, our Father will be there to give us what we need. And so when we pray for daily bread, we're asking God for all things that are necessary for life and for godliness. Well, what about the lampstand as sort of our second sub-point here? What are some theological truths that we learn? What do we learn from the lampstand about the nature of God and the wonder of His grace? Well, the lampstand itself being extremely elaborate with these forged branches and petals, blossoms and and flowers was in the shape of a tree. And in resembling a tree, it would be reminiscent of the tree of life in the garden and the fact that God is the giver of life. And with the seven lights on the lampstand, we might think both of the days of creation and perhaps the seven major lights of heaven, sun, moon, and five known planets. And so, in the lampstand, there is symbolism of both light and life. God created life at the very beginning of creation, and the tree of life was there for Adam and Eve, there for the taking. But because of our rebellion with Adam, the angel with the flaming sword of justice kept mankind from partaking, and instead we merited death. And so, the fact that there is a lamp in the shape of a tree gives us hope that the right person can come in the right way and have access to life with God. And it's at the end of God's Word in Revelation chapter 22 that the tree of life is restored for the healing of the nations. And as a lampstand, it points as well to the fact that He is the God of light, a light which brings life and growth, in whom there is no darkness at all. 
And the fact that the light was to be burning constantly finds its fulfillment as well in the book of Revelation, chapter 21. In the new heavens and the new earth, there is no need for sun or moon, for the glory of God gives light, and its lamp is the Lamb. One commentator that I read writes, just as He gave light in the original creation to bring order into the realm He had made, so now He provides for light in the miniature representation of the realm of His restored fellowship with His people. And so the light here from this tree-like lampstand points ahead to the light and life that is Jesus Himself. You'll remember in John's gospel in the prologue that he sets up this expectation of the Lord Jesus as the giver of light and life. This is in John 1 verse 4. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then throughout John's gospel, Jesus makes these regular statements and claims that He is life and light. John 3.15, whoever believes in Me has eternal life. John 3.19, the light has come into the world. John 5.21, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. John 6.40, whoever looks on the Son and believes in Him has eternal life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 10, 10, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me Though he die, yet shall he live. In John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And so you see, everything in the tabernacle has a purpose, teaches us something of the nature of God and his love for lost and undone sinners teaches us something about our great need, teaches us something about the wonder of what our Heavenly Father has done to bring us to Himself, that we might dwell with Him forever. In our Christian education class on Sunday morning in the chapel, we've been talking about the importance of allowing Scripture to shape a biblically informed grid through which we understand and interpret any portion of God's Word. In other words, we want the Bible to teach us how to study the Bible. And with this section of Exodus, it is so important that we look to the book of Hebrews to shape those lenses and to help us understand how all of this points to the Lord Jesus Christ and how all of it is fulfilled in Him. And so just think, of exa- for example, of Hebrews chapter 7, where Jesus is that greater than Melchizedek a heavenly priest come down from heaven who has no beginning because he has life in himself. 
He has the power of indestructible life, we read in verse 16, that He grants to His own. And so Jesus is, you see, the bread of life. He's the light of the world. He is the one who in His priestly work carries us all the way into that most holy place where we commune with the living God. And any who come to Jesus in faith will find what He offers, life and light and freedom from condemnation. As we await His return, we are to live for Christ, and we are to shine as lights in this dark, dark world. Isaiah 25 verse 6 teaches us that on that day when death is swallowed up forever, we will feast together in blessed intimacy and peace for all of eternity as we partake of a feast of rich food and well-aged wine. And now being made recipients of grace, that stirs our hearts toward gratitude. In closing, reflect upon the words of the Apostle Paul from Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So may God be pleased to work such hearts of gratitude in the lives of His redeemed children.